You're listening to a message from Christ's Covenant Church, where we are growing together in Christ as a caring community of disciple-makers. Thank you for listening, and please feel free to share this with others who may find it helpful. Do you remember that little hand trick we learned as kids? Um, or maybe you've done it with children. It goes, uh, here's the church, here's the steeple. Open the doors, and there's the people. I mean, you can practice it if it's difficult for you. you know? <laughs> yeah, I think a lot of us, when we were kids, someone did that with us, or maybe you've done it with children. It's just a little simple hand trick. Here's the church, here's the steeple. Open the doors, there's the people. Well, someone suggested that Nehemiah in the Old Testament could have said something like this. Here are the walls, here's the gates. Open the city. Oh, what a pity. Because in Nehemiah's day, the portion of God's word we're going to look at this morning, uh, if you opened the gates of Jerusalem, you would find hardly any people at all. In fact, Nehemiah chapter 7 verse 4 says, the city was wide and large, the people within it were few, and no houses had been rebuilt. And so we've been rejoicing along with the people there in uh, Nehemiah's day, rejoicing to see the walls built. But the reality is, after the walls were built, the city was largely unpopulated. Only a handful of people were living within those rebuilt walls. 500 years before this, King Solomon, who lived in that very city, who lived in Jerusalem, wrote a proverb. He said, in a multitude of people is the glory of a king, but without people. A prince is ruined. Cities need people. And this was just no mere city. This was Jerusalem, the holy city. The holy city where God's temple dwelt, where God came and met with his people, from which he launched his kingdom work. Jerusalem was almost totally unpopulated. The walls of Jerusalem had been rebuilt amazingly in 52 days, even while surrounded by taunting enemies. If people look back over those less than two months and saw the walls had been rebuilt so quickly in spite of great opposition, I quote now from Nehemiah 6.16, people realized that the walls had been rebuilt with the help of God. There was no human explanation. I mean, there had been returnees living there in Jerusalem for generations, a couple of generations, and the walls had not been rebuilt. But now God used this leader, Nehemiah, to to motivate the people, to organize the people so those walls could be rebuilt in less than two months. But during those years of the first returnees coming back, and even right up until Nehemiah's day, most of the Jews who returned from Persia decided to settle in the villages or out in the countryside. Almost all of them were villagers. Maybe they were the ancestral homes or maybe they just enjoyed the comforts of small town life, but they lived in these villages surrounding the city, but not within the city itself. So what's Nehemiah going to do? What's he going to do? As a leader, what is he going to do about this problem of having the walls rebuilt, but the interior, the city itself, was still largely uninhabited? Join me, please, if you will, in the book of Nehemiah, chapters 11 and 12. 11 and 12. We're going to look at two chapters today, but uh, we're not going to read the whole passage, especially since it's full of Hebrew names, which I cannot pronounce them all. (laughs) 
but we will get an overview of chapter 11, spending more time in chapter 12. And as we look at these two chapters in the book of Nehemiah, here's some hooks for your memory. We're going to see people, we're going to see priests, and we're going to see a parade. The people in chapter 11. So, good-sized city, very few people living in it. For Jerusalem to prosper as a city of God, it needed people to help protect it, and it needed people there to be productive. Uh, but at this time, Jerusalem would have looked like a ghost town. There were some people living in it, but very few. Um, some people have suggested maybe it looked like um, one of the bombed-out cities. You might think of some of the cities in Lebanon or Syria, someplace like that, you know, just you see these pictures and people have fled and almost no one lives there. The place is in ruins. And that's what it would have looked like. If you and I would have gone through those newly rebuilt walls and looked around this fairly large capacity within those walls, um, we'd see a lot of rubble. We'd see a lot of rubble, maybe some partially built houses, maybe some tents here and there with people living in them temporarily. But uh, it would not be impressive. It would not be encouraging. So what's the solution? Your Bible is open. You've turned or tapped to Nehemiah chapter 11. Let's look at the first two verses. Now the leaders of the people lived in Jerusalem. So there were some. And the rest of the people cast lots to bring out one of ten to live in Jerusalem, the holy city. Keep in mind that phrase, Jerusalem, the holy city. While nine out of ten remained in the other towns. And the people blessed all the men who willingly offered to live in Jerusalem. So they cast lots. They cast lots. They were going to tithe the population of Jews that lived in Judea at this time. They're going to tithe the population so that 10%, uh, probably around 5,000 people, would move within the city walls. Um, casting lots isn't something we do that much today, but it's interesting how the Proverbs treated this in the Old Testament. Proverbs 16.33 says, The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. So actually, the Lord was the one directing even the casting of lots. It seems from these two verses that, you know, some people, the lot was cast and their name came up, so to speak, so they were going to move into the city. But it seems, if I'm understanding these two verses correctly, that there were other people that said, my name didn't get picked, but I'll go. I'll, my family will go. And so apparently there were some volunteers who went as well. Now, we sit here removed by 2,400 years in an ocean and... Maybe it's a little bit hard to relate to this, but let's try. Let's see if we can understand what it would be like to be one of these families whose name was picked to pull up stakes from your village and move into Jerusalem. Imagine how hard it would be economically, relationally, emotionally. Um, I would guess that nearly everyone that lived out in those villages was involved in some capacity of agriculture, this was uh, an agrarian society. It was a shepherding society. And probably most of the people who lived out in the villages had gardens and vineyards and flocks. And they were asked, pull up stakes and go live in the city. You country folks, you're going to become a city folk. And, okay, well, I guess I'm going to need to find a new career. Or if I'm going to continue to manage my vineyards and my flocks, I'm going to figure out a way to get out there and take care of them every so often or hire someone else to take care of them. There were these shifts in people's thinking 
My career's going to change. I, I'm not going to have the same neighbors. I'm, I'm going to have to meet new people, and I'm going to have to say goodbye to the neighbors I've enjoyed, and maybe family members aren't going to be going with us into the city. And you think of all the relational connections and the economic challenges and career changes and, and just the hard work. Some of you have moved in recent months. Moving is hard work, and the longer you've been married, the harder it is. It's been 15 years since we moved, but I remember when we moved from our, our old house to our current house, you know, going through the attic and the basement, and you pick stuff up and you go, why did we keep this? <laughs> you know, it's like, now we've got to do something with this. You know, well, they wouldn't have had as much stuff back then, but, but still it would just be hard work, and there were no U-Haul trucks. You know, they had to get the stuff there somehow. And then you get to the city, and the place you're going to live, there's a pile of rocks busted down since the days of Nebuchadnezzar. And you've got to look at this pile of rubble and figure out how to make it into a house. Getting your boys, your nephews, whoever to help you. Try to get that house built. Family needs a place to live. It was not easy, was it, friends? And yet they did it. They did it because they wanted to be submissive to the Lord and his leaders. Jerusalem would not have looked like an inviting place to live. It would not have looked like a significant place. I mean, we kind of romanticize it when we think of Jerusalem, but if we think of Jerusalem in Nehemiah's day, we shouldn't romanticize it. It, not, it would not have been a pleasant place to live. It probably was very difficult and even dangerous because capital cities kind of had targets on them. If the enemy wanted to attack, they had to attack the capital. And so it would be dangerous. It would be discouraging in some ways. And and just think about these people. Some of these people, the most recent returnees, a lot of these most recent returnees would have come with Nehemiah. They, they would have come from the capital of the empire. They, some of these people would have come from Susa. And, and I wonder even what it went through Nehemiah's mind. I mean, he lived in the court, the emperor's court, in the capital of the empire, and he moves to Jerusalem. This quote, bombed out city with almost no one living there. I was thinking about this. And I, was, I was thinking it would be kind of like moving from Washington, D.C., you know, with all of its beautiful monuments and parks to, no offense, but to Milford or Claypool. <laughs> no offense to those of you who live in Milford or Claypool, but there's small towns outlying here in our county. You know, it would be like moving from the capital of our nation to one of our small towns. Um, that doesn't have as much infrastructure and no fancy monuments or fancy parks. And, and that's what these people are called to do. It wouldn't have looked significant. It wouldn't have looked glamorous. There was no glitz to moving Jerusalem, and yet the people did it. Why? Why would they have done it? Because it was the holy city. It was Jerusalem, the holy city. It's where God's temple was. This is where God came and met with his people. This is the place from which God launched his kingdom in that era. It's interesting what Nehemiah calls some of these people. I'm skimming down through this long list of names. You go ahead and let your eyes skim down through chapter 11. These Hebrew names, you see there? And, and then you see these descriptions Nehemiah inserts, like in verse 6, he calls them valiant men. You read down there in verse 8 or verse 14, he calls them men of valor. And so these were ordinary guys. A lot of these were probably ordinary guys. You know, they had a flock. They had a vineyard. Uh, they had lived out in the village for a while. But now they're moving into the city at the beck and call uh, of the leaders. 
We need people to live in the city. And these guys that went, he calls them valiant, men of valor. Not only did Nehemiah honor them, but if you read verse 2, it says the people that didn't move, they blessed them. And you can picture, you can picture families gathering their stuff and putting them on a cart and hooking up the ox and heading down that dirt road toward the city. And the neighbors are all going, Lord, bless you. Bless you, my friend. Bless you, my family. Thank you so much for going to Jerusalem. Thank you for populating the holy city, representing us. You know, and the people blessed them. And I'm reading this chapter that would be so easy to skim over. And I began thinking, well, what about us? What about me? You know, we get comfortable in our lives. You're comfortable in your life. I'm comfortable in mine. We get used to our careers. We get used to our incomes, our, our houses, our neighbors, our stuff. But what if God put his finger on you? What if the Holy Spirit put his finger on you and says, I, I, I want you to move. I want you to leave your home. I want you to leave your stuff. I want you to leave your career. I want you to leave your friends. And I want you to go over here for the sake of the kingdom. I want you to move for the sake of the kingdom. You know what? This is not an abstract thought for some of our families. For those of you who are guests here today, in the Lord's providence, I don't know how to explain it, but in the Lord's providence, he has called a high percentage of our church to go to the dark corners of the world with the light of the gospel. It's unusual. It's unusual for a church to send one or two families, but over the years, we've been asked to do that by the Lord time and again. And as we sit here today, as we sit in this auditorium today, I think of people like the lawyers that we prayed for earlier, and the Joneses, and the Hoods, and the Sotos, and the Henrys, and the Cones, and the Burgers, and Randy Bakers, people who used to sit here among us. My spirit you to leave your home and your stuff and your friends and your extended family and your career and I want you to move for the sake of your kingdom and your career and they're not here sitting among us today unless they're home temporarily they're not among us they're other parts of the world for the sake of the kingdom and you know I think about those of us that haven't gone it could be, it could be that in the Lord's providence, he'll still do that with some of us. That some of us, he'll put his finger on and say, I want you to leave. I want you to go and move here for the sake of the kingdom. It might not be in another country. It might even be here in our own country to help a struggling church. We've had families do that too. Families have pulled up stakes from CCC to go help a struggling church in South Whitley or in Auburn or whatever. He might do that again. Are we willing to say, yes, Lord, I'll let go because your kingdom matters more to me than my comfort. And even if he doesn't call us to leave, he might call on us to take our fingers off of our stuff or take our fingers off of our career or whatever because he wants us to focus our energies on this ministry or that ministry. Maybe a ministry that's not as comfortable. Maybe he wants us to reach out to that recent immigrant whose English isn't that great yet and to befriend that new person at school or that new person at work or in the neighborhood, become their friend, tell them the gospel. Maybe he's asking us to get out of our comfort zone for the sake of the kingdom. And when he calls on people to go, are we ready to bless them? Are we ready to bless them? 
I am so excited what the Lord's been doing recently in our church with um, what you hear about now and then is hold the rope. It's a long story, but back some of the mo- early days of the modern missionary movement, this man named William Carey said he would go if his friend was at Andrew Pooley and hold the rope. You hold the rope for me and I'll, I'll go. And there are people in our church who hold the rope and that number's increasing. And as people from our church go, there are those who hold the rope through prayer, through letters of encouragement, emails of encouragement, um, through sacrificial giving, that we bless those who do go by holding the rope. And friends, we dare not leave this issue without remembering the greatest missionary of all. It wasn't Paul. It was Jesus Christ who left the comforts of his home in heaven to come to this fallen world to redeem us sinners. Paul said it well. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Paul says, of whom I'm, I'm the greatest sinner of all. Aren't you glad? Aren't you glad that Jesus didn't say, no, I kind of like it here in heaven. I'm comfortable here. This is my home. I'm with my Father. I'm with the Spirit. I have these angels worshiping me. I kind of like it here. No, he gave it up for the cause of our redemption. He came. Back to Nehemiah 11. Back to Nehemiah 11. Let's look at the variety of people. Let's just skim our eyes down through chapter 11. Who do we see in this chapter? The variety of people moved into the holy city. There there were provincial leaders, people from Judah, people from Benjamin. Uh, There were priests, Levites, gatekeepers. You look at this and you see such a diverse group, don't you? There are different gifts, different responsibilities, different abilities. Uh, Jerusalem, even though it wasn't a big town back then, maybe 5,000 people or so, it, it was diverse, a diverse group of people. And in some ways, it's a mini picture of the church itself, isn't it? We're, we're a diverse group. Uh, we have in our church different races represented, different ethnic groups, different salvation stories, different socioeconomic backgrounds, different careers. And yet there's... An astonishing, inexplicable unity. Well, it seems inexplicable. Why is such a diverse group of people so united? Why do we love one another? It's not because we all have the same passions in life. It's not because we all have the same careers or we're like one another ethnically. What unites us is Christ himself. And so we as the church are a reflection of this as well. Friends, as we think through this passage in chapter 11, Um, if God's calling you to do something that might be out of your comfort zone, I think the temptation sometimes is uh, it's tempting to not move out of our comfort zone because, well, what if no one notices? What if I don't get an acknowledgement? What if I don't get any encouragement? If I step out and do that difficult ministry? I just want to remind you of something from Hebrews chapter 6, verse 10. (coughs) It says, God is not unjust. He will not forget your work and the love you have shown him as you have helped his people and continue to help them. If God's calling you, I'm not the Holy Spirit, and I don't even know what he's doing in your life, but if he's calling on you to go, it might mean physically to move, or it might just mean shifting in your comfort. Or you say, no, I'll reach out to that person. I'll do that ministry behind the scenes. Even even if I don't get acknowledged, I want to remember that God doesn't forget. He, he notices me. 
did Jesus say would happen one day? Well done, great and famous servant. No, that's not it, is it? I'm thankful to hear the laughter. We know that's not what it says. It doesn't say, well done, good and famous servant. It says, well done, good and faithful servant. We want to be faithful to the calling that he gives us. <coughs> so we've met a bunch of people. Uh, let's move on into chapter 12. Chapter 12, as we work through the book of Nehemiah, and here we meet some priests. In the first, 20, first 26 verses, there are actually two lists of priests. won't belabor this, but the first nine t- verses of chapter 12 seem to be referring to priests that returned home back in Zerubbabel's day. So this would have been a number of years before, back in Zerubbabel's day. Here's a list of priests. And then in verses 10 through 26, he seems to be dealing with different uh, priestly families and Levites. They're lists, lists of names. Um, you say, well, how am I supposed to benefit from reading a list of names, even a list of names from people that lived a generation or two ago? Well, I think one thing that we can learn from this, just kind of a sidebar lesson, if you will, is the benefits, the benefits of knowing the past. Um, you know, we're not the first generation of believers. You knew that, didn't you? We're, we're not the first generation of believers. I think of a relay race. It's been on my mind in recent days. I think because I'm a grandfather, I think about this. That uh, in, in recent days, just reflecting on the fact that um, there's more generations behind me than there are ahead of me. <laughs> you know, I, I don't know everyone's salvation story here, but if you're here today as a believer, I, I can be almost certain that there was someone who ran the lap ahead of you who handed you the baton. And so while you're, you're coming up behind the person who preceded you, that person handed you the baton, and now you're running your lap of the race. And one day, you need to hand that baton on to the next generation. And it's good to read lists like this people that lived long ago to remember, I'm not the first generation, I'm not in the first generation of believers. There were people who preceded me. That the work of God, God's work of redemption is bigger and longer than you and me. You need to be humbled by that and encouraged by that. That God's work of redemption is big and long. It includes people not like me. It includes people that were preceding me. And if the Lord tarries, it'll include people that come after me. And that we appreciate that. The rest of Nehemiah 12, here we get to the parade. And this is what probably people are anxious to get to. It sounds more exciting than lists of names. The parade. It was time to celebrate. The walls were done. God had moved not only in rebuilding the walls, but in reviving the hearts of the people. And what we see in this part, beginning of verse 27, what we see in this part of Nehemiah chapter 12 is a worship parade. Many people look at this section in the book of Nehemiah as the climax, at least of the last half of the book, if not the whole book. I'm going to read this passage aloud to you, and as I do, I'd like you to pay attention to what you're seeing and what you're hearing, because I'll come back to you in a few minutes, and even if you don't answer aloud, I'd like you to be answering in your mind, what did you see? What did you hear? What's going on in Nehemiah 12? Let's begin reading at verse 27. I'll read aloud, and I'm going to read the whole rest of the chapter. And at the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, they sought the Levites in all their places, in other words, out in their villages, to bring them to Jerusalem to celebrate the dedication with gladness, with thanksgiving, and with singing. 
with cymbals, harps, and lyres. And the sons of the singers gathered together from the districts surrounding Jerusalem and from the villages of the Netophathites, also from Beth Gilgal and from the region of Geba and Asmaveth. For the singers had built for themselves villages around Jerusalem, and the priests and the Levites purified themselves, and they purified the people and the gates and the wall. Then I brought the leaders of Judah up onto the wall and appointed two great choirs to give th- that gave thanks. One went to the south on the wall to the dung gate, and after them went Hashiah and half of the leaders of Judah, and Azariah, Ezra, Meshulam, Judah, Benjamin, Shemaiah, and Jeremiah, and certain of the priests, sons of the trumpet, sons with trumpets, Zechariah, the son of Jonathan, son of Shemaiah, son of Mataniah, son of Machiah, son of Zachor, son of Asaph, and his relatives, Shemaiah, Azarel, Malai, Gileliah, Maai, Nathanael, Judah, and Hanani, with the musical instruments of David, the man of God. And Ezra the scribe went before them. At the fountain gate, they went up straight before them by the stairs of the city of David, at the ascent of the wall above the house of David, to the water gate on the east. The other choir of those who gave thanks went to the north, and I followed them with half of the people on the wall above the tower of the oven to the broad wall and above the gate of Ephraim and by the gate of Ashtonoth and by the fish gate and by the tower of Hananel and the tower of the hundred to the sheep gate. And they came to a halt at the gate of the guard. So both choirs of those who gave thanks stood in the house of God and I and half the officials with me. And the priest, Eliakim, Maaseah, Miniamin, Micaiah, Elionai, Zechariah, and Hananiah with trumpets, and Maaseah, Shemaiah, Eleazar, Uzi, Jehoanan, Melchijah, Elam, Ezer. And the singers sang with the Jezrahites as their leader. And they offered great sacrifices that day and rejoiced, for God had made them rejoice with great joy. And the women and children also rejoiced, and the joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. On that day, men were appointed over the storerooms, the contributions, the first fruits, and the tithes, to gather them into the portions required by the law for the priests and for the Levites, according to the fields of the towns. For Judah rejoiced over the priests and the Levites who ministered, and they performed the service of their God and the service of purification as did the singers and the gatekeepers according to the command of David and his son Solomon. For long ago, in the days of David and Asaph, there were directors of the singers, and there were songs of praise and thanksgiving to God. And all Israel, in the days of Zerubbabel and in the days of Nehemiah, gave the daily portions for the singers and the gatekeepers. And they set apart that which was for the Levites, and the Levites set apart that which was for the sons of Aaron. You see a map here of Jerusalem at the time of Nehemiah. And just so you can picture what's going on here, uh, the walls of Jerusalem, almost two miles around, and apparently the parade started somewhere in this area, Valley Gate, and half of the people, one of the choirs went south down to uh, the Dung Gate down here in the valley, and then back up to this area of the temple. Similarly, another group started the same place and headed north, both groups meeting here in the temple courtyard. So they surrounded the city. 
they surrounded the city with music. They surrounded the city with praise. It was large and loud and, and celebratory as the people worshiped the Lord on the wall. By the way, while we're talking about them being up on the wall, I don't know how you picture the walls, but do you remember back when they were building the wall, some of the enemies said, if even a fox goes up on that wall, it'll fall down. Remember that? Some of you that were here when we studied the earlier parts of Nehemiah, you know, that the enemies were just taunting them. You don't know how to build walls. If a little fox goes up there, what's a fox weigh, you know, 10 pounds or something? That wall's going to fall down. There were parades of people up there. <laughs> you know, the Lord had provided these people to build large, strong walls. And now these two parades, one going one direction, one going the other direction, and meeting at the temple. So as you listened to all that, what did you see? What did you hear? What, what did you hear and see about this worship parade or these worship parades? It was a purified worship, wasn't it? Did you notice that right at the beginning, that they offered purification? It doesn't say what that was, but it probably involved certain sacrifices of animals, probably some washing, some cleansing. Why would they do that? Why would they begin their worship with purification? Because of who they're worshiping. It's a holy God. And, and we live in a very casual day, and, and there's some merits to being casual, but I think one of the difficulties of being casual is that we forget who it is we're worshiping. That he's a holy God. And uh, being Americans, we feel like all of us have the right to be anywhere we want when we want. But to be in the presence of God, a holy God, a God who is so holy he can't even look at evil. And you say, well, how in the world are we here? You know, when we worship the Lord, it's, it's as if we were in the Holy of Holies. And you say, how, how, how am I allowed in here? How, how am I qualified to enter into the Holy of Holies, into the very throne room of the holy God of the universe? And there has to be purifications. And I'll tell you what. You can try if you want. You can try to purify yourself to make yourself good enough for God, and you're never going to get there. You're, you're never going to be good enough. You can't, you can't wash enough sins away. You can't turn over enough leaves. You can't pull yourself up well enough that you say, okay, now I'm qualified to go into the throne room of God. And yet the author of Hebrews tells us this in Hebrews chapter 10. He says, therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Friends, worship still should begin with purification, but that purification comes not from your hands or mine. It comes from Jesus Christ himself. That every time we worship individually or worship as a church, every time we pray, I think we should begin with a certain level of grateful astonishment. I think every time we enter into the throne room of God, whether it's to ask or to worship, we should have this wonderment in our hearts like, how did I get here? Why, why, am, why am I? Why would the likes of me be allowed in here? And then we remember, I've been washed. I've been purified. I've been washed with the blood of Christ. And now the Father looks at me as, as pure, as clean. Not because I'm clean or pure in and of myself, but because of Jesus Christ. 
He purified me. He, he cleansed me from all my sin. And that, my friends, is our confidence. We worship not because we're good people. We pray not because we're allowed in on our own. We worship and we pray because of Jesus Christ. He purified us. What else did we notice about this worship parade? It was purposeful, wasn't it? These people were worshiping God. They're not up there just kind of meandering like, well, whatever, just doing your own thing. No, it was focused. It was purposeful. They were there to worship God. It was prepared. I think it's easy to miss this. It was a prepared worship. Um, some of you are musicians, and we appreciate our musicians on Sunday. Thank you so much, musicians, for your ministry. Do you know our musicians practice before Sunday morning? Did you know that? You probably knew that. Um, it takes practice. It takes preparation to worship properly. And, and these people, if you read carefully in Nehemiah 12, there were different instruments. There were percussion instruments. There were wind instruments. Um, there were stringed instruments. Even we had some of those here on the platform this morning, didn't we? And if you're going to have these different kinds of instruments playing together, and singers, people were singing um, they, they needed to know what they were doing. There needed to be some unity, some practice here. And I, we don't know for sure what they sang, but I wouldn't be surprised if it was Psalm 48. Wouldn't be surprised. You want to turn there with me, Psalm 48? I can picture this. I know it's just my imagination, hopefully a sanctified imagination, that as these people had their worship parades around the city, one going in that direction and the other going in the other, that maybe they were singing and playing this song, Psalm 48, a song, a song of the sons of Korah. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised in the city of our God. His holy mountain, beautiful in elevation, is the joy of all the earth. Can you hear the people singing this? Mount Zion in the far north, the city of the great king, within her citadels, God has made himself known as a fortress. For behold, the kings assembled. They came on together. As soon as they saw it, they were astonished, astounded. They were in panic. They took to flight. Trembling took hold of them there. Anguish as a woman in labor. By the east wind, you shattered the ships of Tarshish. And as we have heard, so we have seen in the city of our Lord of hosts as a city of our God, which God will establish forever. We have thought on your steadfast love, O God, in the midst of your temple. As your name, O God, so your praise reaches to the ends of the earth. Your right hand is filled with righteousness. Let Mount Zion be glad. Let the daughters of Judah rejoice because of your judgments. Walk about Zion. Go around her. Number her towers. Consider well her ramparts. Go through her citadels that you may tell the next generation that this is God, our God, forever and ever. He will guide us forever. Can you hear them singing that? I can. I can hear those people singing Psalm 78 as they go around the city. It was precipitatory, wasn't it? Participatory, wasn't it? Um, lots of people, variety of people, singers, musicians, and even the kids got involved. If you read verse 43, even the kids were singing and praising God. Different generations, different types of people, different musical abilities, all particip participating in the worship of God. Are you a participant in the worship of God? Now, we don't police this at CCC, and we're not going to. But every one of us here today who claims the name of Christ should be participating in the worship. 
that you come, I come into this auditorium for corporate worship as participants. Well, let me ask you a question. Here at CCC, here at our church, how many people are in the audience Sunday by Sunday? Any of you know the answer to this? How, how many are in the audience in our worship every Sunday? One. Thank you. I heard that from several of you. Were you anticipating that answer? There's one. Oh, I'm sorry. You're, you're not the audience. I'm not the audience. The audience is one, capital O. We come to worship him. And so if you come into our auditorium, you regulars here at CCC, if you come into the auditorium Sunday by Sunday, to remember as you walk in from the parking lot, I'm coming to that worship service not as the audience, but as a participant. And I'm joining with my friends, my brothers and sisters, for the audience of one. Audience of one. I'll tell you what, that changes your perspective. You don't leave saying, well, what did I get out of worship today? Did I like the worship today? That's the wrong question. And we enjoy the worship. In fact, a lot of times when I pray on Sundays, on my own even, I, I'm thinking, Lord, I enjoyed worship today, but you know what? My question is, did you enjoy it? Did you enjoy it today, Lord? Because it came today to serve you. It came today to worship you. But we're all participants. We're all in the choir. We're all worshiping the audience of one. It was passionate worship, wasn't it? It was loud. I think we need to remember every so often that God likes loud music. <laughs> we see it here. We see it in Revelation 5. And he likes lots of people worshiping with what we call here thoughtful passion. As you, as you looked at this passage, I tried to emphasize certain things with my voice. But did you notice certain passions, certain thoughtful passions in this worship parade? Any, any particular passions strike you? There's a couple that were repeated. You can pick the obvious one if you want. Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving, it's also called joy. In one place it's called Thanksgiving, other places joy. I think, let's, let's talk about those. I think this worship service that we see here, this, this worship parade that we see in Nehemiah 12, it was marked by Thanksgiving and it was marked by joy. Uh, that these people were reflecting on God's goodness, God's kindness to them, and then as they worshiped him, that thankfulness, God, you've been so good to us, that joy in who he is and what he has done for them was dominating their words, dominating their affections, dominating their actions. There was gladness, joy, thankfulness. There was nothing half-hearted about it. Worship should be passion, not thoughtless passion. Uh, we say here at CCC, for those of you that are newer, our guests, that we want to have thoughtful passion. Not just passion for passion's sake. We want it to be full of thought, that we see, we think about God and who He is. We see in His Word how He's revealed Himself to be. And as we see Him, we're thinking about that, we're thoughtful about that. That moves us emotively, that it, it, it grips our affections so that we worship Him with passion. We see that here in Nehemiah 12. And then lastly and briefly, I'll call it a proven worship. Those last four or five verses in this chapter talk about the people giving their offerings. Um, we have a, a taunt here in our culture where we say, put your money where your mouth is. You know, 
when someone says they believe something, you know, we say, put your money where your mouth is. <laughs> and we're in essence saying, prove it. Prove it. If it's that important to you, put your money where your mouth is. Well, <laughs> it wasn't a taunt, but it was a similar thinking back then that if these people truly did worship God, they wanted to put their money where their mouth was. And they gave. They gave sacrificially. They gave the first fruits. They gave their offerings. They gave their tithes because they wanted God to be worshipped. And they knew that to do that, they, the singers needed supported and the priests needed supported and, and the Levites needed supported. And, and so they gave sacrificially because they wanted God to be worshipped. And so do we. Even in the New Covenant era, in Philippians chapter 4, verse 18, Paul said that the gifts that the Lord gave the people gave to the Lord's work was a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. So as you give your offerings, even here at CCC, to realize that if it's given with the right heart, God says, that smells good to me. That shows me that you really mean it. As we look at this passage of Nehemiah 11 and 12, what would you say is the primary take-home? I wrestled with this. This isn't, quote, an easy passage to preach. Long lists of names and um, geography. <laughs> What's the take-home? Let me, let me offer this. Jerusalem in this era was not impressive. And yet, it drew in people's hearts with joy, thanksgiving, because it was. How does this passage start, Nehemiah chapter 11? The holy city, the holy city. Through the teaching of Ezra, <coughs> the Levites, even Nehemiah's teaching, even though he was a government official, the, the leaders taught the people, this is God's holy city. This is where his temple is. In this time and the plan of redemption, this is where God showed himself. He showed himself in the temple in Jerusalem. This is where he meets with us, his people. And it is from here that he spreads his word. And the people saw that. They were taught to see that. And as they were taught to see that this is God's place, this is where God comes and meets with us. Even though by the worldly standards, it didn't match up to Susa. It didn't look like the capital of the empire. It wasn't fancy. It wasn't glitzy. It wasn't glamorous. But it's the holy city. This is where God comes. This is where God meets with us. This is where God launches his redemptive program. The people saw that and they embraced it. And it was with gladness and thanksgiving they entered in. And yet we look at the temple of Nehemiah's day, Ezra's day. We look at that city and... It's a wonderful promise of God fulfilled. We, we don't want to in any way depreciate God fulfilling that promise, even <clears throat> going back to what Jeremiah and the other prophets said, if you repent, I'll bring you back. And yet we realize that <clears throat> it's, just, it's just a foretaste. It's just an appetizer of it. That wasn't it. That wasn't the complete fulfillment that there's, something greater coming, that Jerusalem of old and the temple of old were just a, a taste of better things to come. And, and we, we run to the end of our Bibles to Revelation 21, and, and we read this. Listen carefully to the words from Revelation 21, verses 1 through 5. 
Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heavens and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. Listen, and I saw, have you ever heard this before? I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. Doesn't that give you shivers? The dwelling place of God is with man. Amazing. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and and death shall be no more. Neither there shall be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. The Jerusalem of old, my friends, as good as it was in the plan of redemption at that time, is just a taste. It's just a foreshadow of better things to come. Where one day the holy city, the new Jerusalem, will descend from heaven and God says, I'm going to come and make my place permanently here among my people. I'm going to lift the curse, take away sin, kill, put Satan in the pit, and all things will be new. No more sin. No more sin. Think about that. No more sin. No more pain. No more death. No more sin. God's dwelling with us. The new Jerusalem. And you know what the prototype of that is, my friends? Do you know what the prototype of the new Jerusalem is? It's us. It's the church. It's the church. We're the prototype of the good thing to come. We're the prototype of the new Jerusalem. We must look ahead to the days that are coming. I was just recently reading through the book of Hebrews, and I'll tell you what, that I, I need to do that every so often, just read through the book of Hebrews. But I was reading things like this, Hebrews 13, 14. Here on this earth, we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. We seek the city that is to come. Abraham, chapter 11, by faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Way back, Abraham could already see it in his eyes of faith. He could already see in his eyes of faith that there's going to be a city coming one day that's built as God. And we have so much of the Bible that we can lean on that he didn't have to see what is coming, the new Jerusalem, God's dwelling with man. We desire a better country, a heavenly one, so that God is not ashamed to call us his people. He's prepared for us a city. You know what? This world has so much to offer us that looks glitzy, so much to offer us that looks glamorous. And we might be drawn in by what New York has to offer or L.A. or Hollywood or Washington, D.C. or wherever in this world. And we look at what this world has to offer and we say, wow, that looks pretty attractive. 
you know what, maybe I'll just live for this world. Maybe I'll just live for the glitz and glamour of this world. It looks substantive to me. It looks like it's worth devoting my life to. And yet it can never deliver on its promise. It can't deliver on its promise. So you give yourself to the glitz and glamour of this world, what this world has to offer you, you're going to end up hungry. You're going to end up dissatisfied. You're going to say, that's not it. That's just, that's not it. There must be something more, something more lasting, something more fulfilling. A, a city whose foundation is built by God, a city who's built by the hands of God, the new Jerusalem. And we, the church, are the prototype of that. We're what he's, we're what he's showing the world he's going to do. First Peter 2, but you, church, are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And I want to encourage all of us here today that the church in this era is the focal point of God himself. God lives with us. We are his new covenant temple. And it is through us that he's doing his work of redemption around the world. And it's so easy in our culture to look at the church somehow as a sidebar to life. It's kind of an addendum to my life. It's kind of a, a nice add-on. I have my life living for this world and the church and the work of God through the church is just, it's an add-on. It's a garnish. And yet we look through the eyes of Scripture. We look through the lenses of God's Word and we, we get a very different perspective. When we look through the lenses of God's Word, we say, well, well this, is, this is His temple. This is where God meets with us, His church. And this is, this is where he's launching his great work of redemption around the world in our day. We're heading for the new Jerusalem. And today the church is his prototype of that day. And we see his work in the church not as peripheral, not as a sidebar, not as a garnish, but as the primary means of his glory being shown in our generation. So like the people in Nehemiah's day that might have looked at... Uh, city of Jerusalem and say, eh, not that glamorous. Maybe I'll go for something else. <laughs> it was the holy city. The place where God dwelt. And people worshipped with gladness and thanksgiving. And God is here. He's with us. And we look at the church and it might not look as glamorous as what the world has to offer, but we say, mm, that won't last. This will last. These are the people of God. These are the redeemed people of God. This is where God comes and dwells. This is where God does his work. And we respond with thankfulness and gladness, with joy, that we can be part of his people. Amen.